1: My name is Michael Johnston, and this is New Books and Sociology, and today I have Margot Finn on, on this podcast. We are discussing Discriminating Taste, How Class Anxiety Created the American Food Revolution, uh, published by Rutgers University. Dr. Finn is currently a lecturer in American Culture and University Courses at uh, the University of Michigan. She completed her undergraduate work at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She completed a Master's of Arts degree in American Culture from the University of Michigan, and also completed a Ph.D. in American Culture with an emphasis in food studies, media studies, 20th century U.S. history, and cultural studies from the University of Michigan. Her dissertation was titled, Aspirational Eating, Class Anxiety, and the Rise of Food and Popular Culture. Her specialties are in the areas of humanities research, teaching with an emphasis on media and cultural studies, composition instruction, as well as writing and editing. Her goal with this uh, research is to better understand how popular beliefs about food and eating reinforce social inequalities and how they might also challenge inequalities and drive uh, progressive social change through this research. Margot wishes to contribute accessible Critical and historical grounded analysis to grow the popular discourse about food and activist movement to change the way food is produced and consumed. she also uses this knowledge to help students become better thinkers, readers, and writers and develop a broader and deeper understanding of u s cultural history and mass media. so truly a research teacher who not only wants to uh, write and disseminate through publication but using it right in the classroom and I'm glad to welcome Margot to our show today. Margo, is there anything else you. that you would like like to add to your biography? No, that's a wonderful introduction.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here
1: Excellent So uh, the first question really is to is to discuss what brought you to writing this book.
0: Sure. so, um, I was kind of midway through grad school and um and thinking about leaving grad school um my and the project that I had come in intending to do was not working out for a number of reasons, the main one being that it required me to learn Arabic, and that was proving to be so much harder than I could have possibly anticipated. Um, so I was talking to the the professor Paul Anderson, who would become my advisor um about this you know my, my thoughts about leaving. And he said, you know, well, what, like what are you going to (laughs) do instead? What's your, what's your plan? And I said, I'm going to be a sommelier, Um, you know, which I knew uh, only what Google had told me about how, how you become a sommelier. But, but from Google's description, I was like, that's, that's what I'm going to do. I had done some food service work. I liked it. um, And I, and I hadn't really done anything else outside of academia. And, and he, you know, very reasonably kind of talked me through this, this, Decision-making process that I that I hadn't really thought through, and at some point, kind of said, you know, well, like if you're so if you're really interested in wine, why don't you write a dissertation about wine? And I remember my first thought being like, there's no way anybody is going to let me get away with that. Like that's not a lot of thing. Um, but the more we talked in that, you know, and so he said, well, no, but let's wait a minute. So you say that there's this. Massive demand for sommeliers, so you can practically walk into the job. I don't think that was actually true, but, but there were some articles around the time uh, the demand for sommeliers had outpaced the training of them at that at that point in history. Um, and uh, and you know, but it was asking this question of what's going on with wine in America? Why are people drinking so much more wine that there would be this demand for sommeliers? Um, you know, when when did attitudes about wine change? Because there used to be this association between wine and immigrants, and this is sort of where the word wino comes from. Is they give a kind of like low status alcohol, and how did it become high status alcohol? So these started to sound a little bit more like American Studies type questions. Um, And so I went looking to see if other people had done work on food and gotten it through dissertation committees and if there was any kind of legitimacy here. And it turned out that there was. There was this growing field of food studies. Um, And so that's really how I ended up uh, looking into food in in the first place, even though there weren't really any faculty in my department um, doing Doing work on food, although there were there were a few other people around the University of Michigan, it it hadn't really gotten purchased uh, food studies as a kind of field hadn't gotten the kind of purchase where I would have heard of it um, before starting to look into it. But anyhow, that, that's how the project started. It was this question of why did wine become a thing that that people thought was sophisticated and were consuming in such large amounts that the cultural importance of of wine and what people thought about wine has really shifted um even over the span of you know a couple
1: generations and did did that uh research align with uh things like prohibition although that isn't uh wine necessarily did it take a similar track
0: well yeah so it was it was interesting in that um the history of alcohol in the united States is really complicated by this period where where legal prohibition came in Uh, but what we saw with alcohol is that you know so alcohol sales for most different kinds of alcohol increase after prohibition um, but but they don't all increase at the same rate so for a long time beer was dominant um, and also other spirits but but you see wine increasing all through the 60s and 70s um, and then really by the 80s and 90s uh, becoming uh, a competitor to beer and 2005 I think was the year that that more Americans told Gallup in the national poll that they preferred wine over over beer. Sometime around two thousand five, two thousand six where wine actually was named as the uh alcoholic beverage of choice for Americans. So even even just looking at that, you know, even if you take the bright line of of prohibition and, and when alcohol sales were legal again as kind of tracing uh alcohol history in the US, wine still has a different history than than other kinds of alcoholic beverages.
1: Yes, and and, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it may not even have as much of a demonized past of things like bathwater gin and uh, other things that have been tainted, uh, that were tainted during the Prohibition Age because of the negative connotations that came with drinking such uh, beverages.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think wine always had kind of a dual life maybe so it was like associated you know there was like the grain alcohol plus juice that was you know that we still associate with poor alcoholics with Thunderbird and and those things but and then there was always still kind of fine wine too so they did coexist but for a long time the the cheap stuff was really the dominant association um and maybe that makes it a little bit different than things like what even like Jen you're right that there was kind of you know there's like the um the illegal or downtrodden history, and then on the other side, there's like the you know fancy gin cocktail kind of kind of history. And some and at some points those are intertwined, and at some points they separate. Um, but yeah, I, don't know, I guess all, a lot of these, particularly with drugs, maybe there's kind of like the there's the undercurrent side, and then there's the high culture side, and and maybe they're closer than we like to think. But people really want to push against the one that they don't identify with.
1: Yes, I think of the difference just in general from the grape wines to the dandelion wines that uh, tend to be cheaper.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And, uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. The, and the other piece of this is, uh, a, a wine does not just naturally, innately, have a value assigned to it at its uh, conception of, uh, of processing it and then sending it out to drink. How, how does it gain that reputation of being a a, a high class or a highbrow wine? Um, I mean, in the United States, I
0: think it's really that people, you know, it, it, it was available as a signifier of high class consumption when people were starting to look for signs of high class consumption. So it it kind of had that symbolic availability. There was another question I think that you were going to get to, but I'm going to go ahead and jump ahead because this connects to it. But this question of what's not some foods are innately highbrow or if, if it's all kind of socially constructed and I really racked my brain about this and there, you know, there's foods that because of their very nature, they take a lot of labor to produce or, um, or they're just they're hard to hard to grow or you know, require some kind of resource that's scarce. But it's really hard to think of things that really have never had a life on one side or the other of the high brow, low brow thing. There's like really famous ones like lobster, where now of course we think of it as super high brow, it's expensive. Um It's one of the freshest foods that that we consume, particularly with proteins, right, because it's killed in the process of preparing it for you. But historically, it was associated, it was a low-class food, particularly in the kind of very early colonial days when there were just lobsters that would kind of wash up on the shores of New England. And so it was considered a poor person's food. And there were actually laws about how frequently you could feed it to prisoners because to feed it to them too often was seen as a kind of... um, cruelty that, that had to be like legislated against. Um, and there's other things, there's a lot of things that, you know, that we can trace as kind of being on one side or the other. And wine is one of those, I think where it's, it because it can be resource intensive. It can take a lot of time and things that take a lot of time, like um, cheese is another one. So like the more it's aged, the more expensive it is. And you see that with wine as well. Uh, but then you also, again, have the kind of the, the low status, uh, consumed to excess is usually the reputation of the kind of carnivalesque use of wine that's always been seen as a sort of lowbrow of the masses kind of thing. So um I don't So that that question of is there are there foods that are innately highbrow, the only things that I could think of were like gold leaf <laughs> as applied as a decoration. Um I don't think that's ever been considered a lowbrow or populist kind of thing. So flourishes like that and maybe barge meat roast. So even like in contemporary U.S. food culture where the hamburger is low, is low class and populist, um, and accessible to just about everyone, even though beef is itself kind of resource intensive and expensive thing, that the large meat roast is still something that I don't think people tend to associate with, with the poor or with, that's still kind of, it, those are so expensive, I guess, that those are really, um, still mostly an upper, upper class thing. But even that is a little tenuous.
1: And the interesting piece to that, Margot, is that uh, the amount of labor uh, associated with the, uh, with the product to increase the price when it's being sold at market is sort of a, a mirage. The person walks in and assumes that because of the price, uh, they tend to buy and assume that it's a highbrow or a, a, a better product when, when the, the price itself is rather an arbitrary symbol for the quality of the food that is being sold.
0: Yeah, or I mean, it varies, right? The the price does often correlate really well with, um, you know, how resource intensive something is, but that might not necessarily be a good proxy for superior taste or superior whatever quality you're you're looking for. Um, you know, just like, you know, a, a handmade loaf of bread is probably going to cost more than the industrial loaf because the labor embedded in it is more expensive than the kind of automated labor that's embedded in the industrial loaf. But whether or not it's better depends on both whether you what you're looking for in, in a loaf of bread and also was it executed well. So there's probably a lot more terrible artisanal loaves of bread than there are terrible industrial loaves, it, assuming that you think the industrial loaf of bread is acceptable in terms of its aesthetic qualities.
1: If that sure. makes sense. So potentially a better proxy is the taste of the, of the wine that uh, that you're discussing in, in your uh, research and in your book, uh, Discriminating Taste, How Class Anxiety Created the American Food Revolution. Uh, that being said, that may be a good segue to this idea of a food snob. Uh, what is a food snob?
0: Sure. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I don't know if there's one meaning of food snob, but I think that the way people use the word snobbery right now they're usually talking about someone who thinks their taste is better than other people's. Um, that's kind of the, I think the crux of the idea as people are using it So a food snob being somebody who thinks that they've really, you know, for, for whatever reason, they think their taste is superior and other people's taste is, Bad, and there's a judgment that comes along with that, right? It makes them either they're lazy, or they just don't know the difference between what's good and bad, or they don't—they haven't been educated. There's there's some kind of moral judgment that accompanies that idea that they have bad taste. Whereas I think you you know, to distinguish it then from the term foodie that came along in the 1980s, I think when a lot of people grabbed onto the term foodie in part because they wanted a way to signal that they were interested in food without having to be a food snob so it was seen as an alternative to terms like gourmet or epicure and these things that really kind of carried a kind of an elitist sensibility whereas foodie was sort of diminutive um you know I'm not I'm not a gourmet I'm just a foodie um, but because the things that it that, that being a foodie were associated with were so closely associated with class performance and upper middle class culture, it came to be seen as just another kind of food snob, right so that so you might you might think that calling yourself as a foodie a, a foodie rather than a gourmet is saying you're not really a snob, but because foodies were associated with these things that were seen as snobbish. Um, the word came to, I think, mean the same thing. So then you have people saying, oh, I'm not a foodie. Foodies are pretentious. I'm a cowhound. I, I I just like to eat. I'm not a foodie. I just like to eat. It, you see that a lot in online forums. So it's this interesting thing where initially I think it was supposed to be an alternative to the snobbish terms, but there's sort of an elitism creep that like eventually made foodie mean almost the same thing, or at least in some people's eyes, it, it just became the same thing at the food stop,
1: right? And does this uh, align with the uh, change in mindset from the uh, cultural dichotomy that exists between highbrow and lowbrow to this movement uh, or this thought process of the cultural omnivore, where they're able to move from uh, extremely uh, highbrow or or previously thought to be highbrow culture to to lowbrow and be able to uh, eat and drink without uh, much restriction?
0: Yeah, I really... it, in some ways that there, there's certainly been a lot of talk about this, especially I think in sociology as a field, this idea that we've gone from high-brow-low-brow split, split to people who are omnivorous and really eat, kind of have, you know, eat across the spectrum um, or eat everything. But I, I have my, my doubts about how omnivorous even omnivorous eaters really are. I think what happens instead is you get um, people who have a selective appreciation of things that are considered low status, but what they're doing is a little bit like the kind of classic process of slumming. It's like a selective appreciation of a few things that prove that they're not snobs, but they're actually still being pretty discerning, and they're they're not going to just eat the things that they associate with working class people or poor people as like a matter of course. So you might have, you know, so I think, you know, where I see this is I see that you'll get chefs like Wiley Dufresne. Not not that I think Wiley Dufresne is a snob. I really don't. I think that he has a genuine appreciation for, you know, kind of foods across the traditional high-brow low-brow spectrum. But he'll talk about how much he really likes and appreciates American cheese. Um, and I think what he's doing there is taking this symbol of like a populist food, you know, something that could not be gourmet. It's fake cheese, it's plastic cheese, the way a lot of people think about it, and saying, no, actually, this is delicious and I like it, and it has some interesting properties. That as a culinary professional, I appreciate the way that it melts, for example. Um, so, and it's kind of you know saying, I'm not a snob. I don't only have expensive cheese. I like American cheese too when it tastes, when it when it does something that I think is. Superior, right? But he's not necessarily elevating, you know, like prison food or school lunches, or the, you know, like the kind of industrially mass-produced food that actually people have to survive on. Um, that's not what's getting elevated. So, so are they really omnivorous? They're not really willing to eat everything. What they're doing is they're choosing things strategically that contribute to the sense of themselves being the kind of eater they'd like to imagine themselves to be. Um, and I, I mean, I think that there, to some extent this might even have you know, and I think omnivorousness um, has been talked a lot about in music that now you have people it's like you've got to appreciate a little bit of jazz and a little bit of hip hop and a little bit of, you know, it's not just, oh, I listen to classical music. That's what makes me highbrow. But I think even there, you know, it's like, yeah, there's the things where appreciating a little bit of it shows that you're a cosmopolitan enlightened listener. But it doesn't extend to things like diva pop. and It doesn't extend in most cases, to commercial country, like there, you know, so it's like you, you get your omnivory in, and you prove that you're a cosmopolitan consumer by selectively finding the low status things that we've decided actually have some value. It's not really about listening to the things the masses might truly like best.
1: And how does cultural capital play into this? Uh, I think that matters because one must be able to appreciate it and know how to use it in order to navigate those those areas. Uh, they are familiar in. So, does uh, cultural capital play into the selection of what, uh, uh, what wine choices or or what food choices these uh, these people who are indulging in these behaviors select?
0: Certainly, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think I mean I think that's really the key to all of it is, um, what does getting to eat these kinds of things say about me? What does it communicate to other people about me as an eater as a person? Um. And so I think it's definitely wrapped up in cultural capital. And one of the things, of course, that I think is maybe not talked as much about about cultural capital, we have this sense of like, well, it's constructed. And so, you know, and theoretically, right, anybody could have access to it because it's not, it's about who has access to the meaning. But depending on who you are, you might or might not seem authentic if you're eating or performing a certain kind of taste, right? So if if you're seen as a middle class person, then your consumption of you know whether it's wine or uh, or fancy cheese or something like that might be seen as a, a sign of your education and refinement and taste. If you're poor and consuming the same things, that might get read very differently. You might be seen as an inauthentic consumer of those things, or getting above your station, or you know there's just kind of um, the it's a, the urban poor consuming luxury goods. And classically, it's you know the Nike sneakers or a welfare queen driving a cadillac. So it, it these things don't always mean the same thing depending on who they're attached to. Um which is I think you know part of the important part of cultural capital not not just do you know how to use it but do you get to do you get to reap the rewards of performing it accurately. I
1: guess whether it's wasteful or or whether it's a wise uh, a, a wise purchase. Who often right. do does I it, see. Does it
0: show that you have good taste or does it show that you're profligate? you know, and it depends on whether or not people think that you deserve or or can, can can appropriately hold that symbol.
1: The person on welfare buying lobster when they should have bought macaroni and cheese because it feeds more people in the house. Too often do I see that.
0: Exactly. Although I think, you know, for I think given the way that we've now started to think about pro, the kind of dominant ideas about processed food, there's really no way to win because, you know, if you're poor and you buy mac and cheese, then you're eating awful processed food and couldn't you make something fresh? And if you You know, buy fresh things and you're making, you know, uh, I don't know, a salad with some fish on it. Like, how are you supposed to, how can you afford that? You know, we've got middle class people who are just eating rice and beans and you can afford this nice salad with fish. That's not right. It's like, you can't, if you're poor, you can't win. Whatever you do is going to be seen as wrong by
1: somebody and then the politicization with the uh with uh, Michelle Obama and her initiative of eating healthier and the uh, and the development of that in terms of what it means to eat and what food should be in the schools and what food children should be eating although she wasn't the first to to present that 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 model
0: certainly not yeah and i think you know it's like i think it's- there are certainly valid critiques of the let's move campaign, but I I appreciate at least that it was focused primarily on kind of increasing activity, which, um, seems to be an unquestionable good for for mental health as much as anything else. Um, I think there probably was some shaming around childhood obesity that was unnecessary in the process of it, but, um, but yeah, there's, yeah, there's there's so much to say about school food and childhood obesity and all of that. And there's, um, better people than me who, who are experts in that territory specifically
1: yes and the uh the other part the the next question that i i think w- would be good to get started on is so what did you learn about alternative venues for shopping certainly the not only place not the only place to purchase wine is from the uh shopping market or uh or the wine studio but there there's uh Vineyards and a variety of other uh, tasting studios where one can purchase their wine and and, uh, other types of alcoholic beverages. Uh, What did you learn about that in your research?
0: Alternative venues. I mean, I think the, the place we've really seen that um, the most is in kind of natural, so farmers markets. I think that you mentioned um, community supported agriculture subscription services, um, and new kind, just new kinds of pop up markets. And most of them seem to be about trying to connect people to local sourcing. Um, seems to be the primary thing. So certainly with like the tasting rooms and vineyards and the increase in agritourism, the idea that you would go somewhere and the important thing to do would be to see how people produce food in that area and to go see kind of um, often romanticized versions of that kind of food production. And then of course, buy the, the variations of things. So I think the thing that most surprised me in looking into all of these things was um, was that they were that they were not, Better environmentally in the ways that that they have been framed as better environmentally, um, and I didn't expect to I really went in thinking that you know that maybe farmers markets weren't I don't know that, that they weren't necessarily going to be a panacea to all ills, but I, I thought that probably the food was going to be less carbon intensive. You know, if you really just looked at how it was produced, how it was transported to where it was going to be consumed. Um, I thought that the difference in how far it traveled was going to be important. And it turned out that that wasn't true. It turned out that even if you're just looking at the carbon emissions involved in getting that food from where it was produced to where it is purchased, the stuff going to the farmer's market sometimes is, is using more fossil fuels because it's not traveling as efficiently. Um, and that really, I think, you know, that, it raised different questions. So I went in, th- you know, trying to answer these questions. I, Why well, I do so many people want to shop at farmer's markets and what are they getting out of this experience? But I went in thinking that it really was going to be environmentally better. And when finding out that it, that it wasn't necessarily or that, you know, that at least it's not a perfect proxy for environmental sustainability, that really... I guess, uh, maybe brought that question into a different release was like, why do, why do people think it is? So not just why are people doing this, but why are they doing it and investing in this narrative that it doesn't take very much digging to find out is probably false, um, is probably not a good reason for, for doing this thing. And so, um, and so really, I think, you know, the question for me became, why do people believe it's better if it, if the evidence is really weak and contradictory? Um, and I think the answer is if they want to, that they, in some cases, feel like they need to, that they were looking for a way to do this kind of virtuous consumption. And that story became available at a moment where it was very attractive. And so it's 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 amazing how difficult it is to break in people's minds, right? Like you can point them to all the evidence and you still get people having the deep sense that the local must be better because that story is so deeply attractive,
1: I think. Yes, that is interesting, and uh, one of the things, if I remember correctly, you mentioned it. the other piece is while it's uh, not fuel, uh, uh, it's not uh, fuel efficient in terms of how food was being traveled back and forth from farmers' market, uh, not only by the vendors but also the uh, people buying it. But the other piece is that. Uh, the, it it also is not a one stop shop. Many people are going to farmers market, but then also attending Walmart, uh, going to Walmart, or going to Target and other places where they buy those commodities that aren't available at the farmers market. Toilet paper, uh school and sports, uh, paper plates, like
0: tin foil, <laughs> you know, yes. yes, yeah, all the other things. Yeah, unless you know, unless you're only making a salad, it's really hard to. To produce a meal at the farmers market, and even then, like are you, you know, are you get what what are you doing for salad dressing? Are you getting all of your salad dressing ingredients at the farmers market too? Probably not. Probably not. So, yeah, so, yeah, you know, people need goods from elsewhere, and so the farmers market is usually an additional car trip, and that's and then any any environmental gains that you might have made get erased in the additional car trips on the consumer's end. Um, but again, it's not gains. It's, not, it's usually worse to begin with. <laughs> so it's worse to begin with and then, it, and then it exacerbates the situation by having many more people take an additional car trip. It's just the opposite of what what, what you want. If what you want is to reduce carbon emissions to the theater with shopping.
1: And then did you see a, uh, this is sort of a, a distinction between slow food movement and the fast food movement, if you want to call it that, the food miles trend and, and this talk about, well, there are fewer food miles that are that are associated with the food sold at farmers market does that alone uh make the the product better or is there something along the lines of uh, a sustainability and how it may last uh while it may have a uh, a shorter lasting shelf life for this food that was sold at farmers market or did it last longer the same amount are some of the things that you found between these two different movements oh that's
0: a good question yeah this movement is interesting and in that I mean I think that it appeals to to many people for the same reason that a lot of these things do right this idea of getting back to something natural preserving something that people see as being lost as countering what you see as kind of fast industrial food um, but it's I I think that it, I don't know. The most interesting moment for me in the slow food m- movement is is in kind of the mid two thousands when it seemed like they were starting to try to reach out and become more of a food justice organization. And they started. Um, I wrote about it in the book a little bit. This campaign called the five dollar cam- food camp- meal campaign, or five dollar meal campaign, where they they said they were going to challenge people to cook a slow food meal for no more than five dollars per person served. Um, but but. That whole thing raised a bunch of controversy within the organization because it was seen as uh, encouraging the idea that people should pay less for food, and 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 you had people come out and say explicitly, no, we want people to pay more. We want people to be, because their idea was, you know, more money staying with farmers. Um, but of course, that makes. The movement completely inaccessible to anybody who can't pay more for food, which is the situation that at least 15 percent of Americans who would qualify for supplemental nutritional assistance, um, and probably many more Americans, realistically at least 50 percent of the country can't even contemplate spending more money. On food, um, so there, it, it just a different, an interesting war in the kinds of populism at work. Where for one group, populism and this kind of ground up thing that we have to give more money to farmers, and for another group within slow food, it was populism means we have to be accessible to all people, and they couldn't make both of those happen at the same time. Um, kind of back to, to what the question was, in terms of slow food versus fast food. Oh, and and which which one last one? So. I, I, yeah it's hard to even say in in many cases maybe even on the whole fast food and industrial food is designed to last in a way that the kind of foods championed by slow food tend not to be um and so if you're concerned about food waste issues or um you know other kinds of sustainability questions that involve how long food lasts the industrial or fast food is probably going to be the better bet but you know to slow foods credit, there are a lot of things that um an industrial system can't can't produce um or can't you know can't give you it can't give you um a million options each one of them finely nuanced and different. it can give you the same thing again and again and again, and so I understand why people are saying I don't want this this product that's just the same as everything else I want the i you know the the kind of gritty and interesting and differentiated products that I associate with the past. Uh, whether or not those things are really what existed in the past, it, it's a legitimate aesthetic preference, I think, to have even in the present.
1: This whole uh, attractiveness of the of the food that is being sold, whether it's uh, something that travels 2,000, 3,000 miles and, and is placed in the supermarket, or if it's the uh, natural food, the food that is being sold at a uh, farmer's market or through CSA programs or community gardens one of the one of the new or uh, uh fancy labels is, is organic i don't think you got into organic much in this book but uh, uh the area where our, where our research parallels I, I found it quite interesting all of the words that, uh or buzzwords that are used in place of organic because of all of the policy that is associated with what it means to be organic or what it doesn't mean to what isn't necessarily organic because it uh uh, whether it be treated wood or something that is being used to produce this. Did you find anything about, uh, organic and, and uh, other buzzwords that are used to, uh, fancify, make something a little bit more appealing and more attractive when selling the product at these, uh, farmers markets and other places?
0: Yeah. And I think, I mean, I do think you're right that the proliferation of, of terms, um, part of it is, you know, is, you're right that the you know some of the restrictions on organic mean that some people are trying to be better than organic. Or or I think just in general that, you know, the, again, the more terms there are, the more um, you're offering people a way to differentiate themselves by buying the product that has the special label that suggests to them that it's better, whether or not they have any idea why, right? Um, and it's interesting that that appeals to people because I think that that, that wouldn't have appealed to people at all historical moments. I, I do think in, you know, kind of from the 40s through the 70s, the kinds of appeals that marketers made to people. And so the kinds of things that they at least believed would appeal to people were very different than this kind of differentiated consumption. Instead it was more about reliability and frugality. And this is the you know you can get the the exact same you'll you'll get you'll get what you expect, right? So we're offering consistency, reliability, um and now I think it's different. Now it's more, you know, we're offering you virtue, we're offering you health, we're offering you improvement, <clears throat> something more ethical, something natural, something free range, something. Um, and so so I do think you get that proliferation of terms as people are trying to differentiate themselves rather than trying to <clears throat> um, go for the thing that they've decided is the same thing and the thing, the kind of unified vision of the good life. Um, yeah. I don't know, if I mean, organic specifically, I, I think, uh, I, I don't know that I have anything novel to say, but I think there's been a lot of great work on it, especially by Julie Guzman. But it, it's not, like many of these other terms, it's not a very good proxy for any kind of um, difference in terms of environmental or health effects. Um, but it is typically, and this is why it's more expensive, less efficient on the whole than the other than conventional production, um, so the one thing that you could I, I think reliably say about organic is that it is usually actually environmentally worse if you're concerned about producing food efficiently on the land that's already been cultivated.
1: Yes, it's something we talk about in there. It's, it's frugality. I I do remember from your book that uh, you discuss the history of of eating patterns for uh, how they dis- how they're quite different between. Uh, men and women and the expectations for how a woman eats or how a, how a man ate throughout history. Could you talk more on that?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, eating is so deeply gendered um, at all times. And I, and I think that um, this is tied up particularly with the kind of weight loss dieting movements that we've seen Um But eating particularly, I think, you know, at least uh, at least one era where this became really prevalent is the Victorian era. You see an association of appetite uh, for food with the association of um, uh, carnal appetite, lust. So it's. Seen as inappropriate particularly for for women and especially adolescent girls to to have to be visibly hungry and eat a lot and particularly to have a hunger for foods that are seen as being very stimulating and masculine like meat or richly spiced foods um and so I, and and I think you know some of those things linger, some of them change uh it, it, there haven't been- per- perfectly straight lines, but I think you still see this idea that um Certain kinds of foods are certainly feminized, certain foods are masculine, but some sometimes people play with those in interesting ways so I think particularly when Atkins and low carb first got started, um, although that was seen as a diet that was friendlier for men because instead of restricting things like meat that are seen as deeply masculine, it says you can kind of have all the meat you want, so seen as a diet that's appropriate for and suited to men, but a lot of women who went on this kind of diet too would really relish in like you know the the freedom or mandate even to like eat a big steak. So there was something kind of, um, I don't know, like you you were being uh, gender transgressive in a way to, to be a woman on a low carb diet and eat a big steak. And that, and there was a pleasure in that too. So I think one of the things that's interesting is not just how people feel hemmed in by these, but how people have also kind of pushed against some of the expectations in ways that are, I don't know, sometimes unexpected
1: and then even gendering from the uh traditionally male foods like instead of a regular steak it might be a petite steak one that is smaller one that is uh uh that it, that is less uh less masculine i guess in in presentation and in name
0: Yeah yeah uh, definitely a filet mignon is going to be way more feminine than what than a, something with a big bone in it <laughs> that's going to be seen as more masculine
1: And then I think of even other foods like wings being associated with football more than maybe volleyball or something like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's definitely sports. And there's there's still, like, you know, occasions where it's seen as appropriate and even necessary to, like, gorge. Like, you have to eat a lot or you're not doing it right. Um, I think – and that's true even for kind of upper-middle-class professional restrained culture that we tend to think of as being sort of abstemious. There's still, like, you know, like the Super Bowl and Thanksgiving, like you still have your feast days.
1: Well, what do you think the uh, future for food consumption is going to be? What patterns do you see uh, on the uh, horizon for the near future?
0: That's a really good. Idea. It's so hard to predict the future. I'm sure everybody. This is probably the question that everybody hems and haws about the most. Um, I think I would. I don't know that I know how to predict the future, but I I think if my theory is right, I can I can give conditional predictions. So the the theory really is that the reason people got so excited about these ways of eating better and these stories about how they could eat better is because class stagnation was making them look for a way to compensate, a way that, you know, I can improve over here in ways that I I cannot improve myself materially because of wage stagnation and, you know, and the rich are getting richer, but I'm not getting better, but here I can eat better. Um, So, so if I were to predict what is going to happen, I think as long as we've got really extreme inequality And the rich being so rich, holding just so much of the wealth and the middle classes and and even the upper middle classes really stagnating. I think you'll see a similar kind of people are going to choose differentiation. They're going to use food to distance themselves from the poor and the working class. They're going to use food to try and show that they are better than other people. And I think they're going to continue to do it in some of the same ways that we've been seeing through choosing natural things, through weight loss dieting, through sophisticated foods, through ethnic foods, through all these things that differentiate themselves from what they see as the norm. But I think in periods, so like from the 1940s to the 1970s, I think we had a really different food culture. And I think if we were to see a compression in the gap between the rich and poor and a kind of return to that period where the middle classes were really gaining in terms of wealth and income, then I think we would see a shift in values. I think in periods like that, where you see compression, where you see less inequality, that instead there's more policing of what's seen as class climbing. So instead of rewarding people for differentiating themselves, I think there's more penalties to differentiating yourself. Um, I think that's when you do see a kind of elevation of working class taste and style rather than denigrating it. I think the forties to the seventies, this is that kind of big period where denim and corduroy become things that everybody wears. They're not just working class fabrics. Um, And again, an elevation of things like frugality and plenty and plainness. And um, so I, so if if we continue to see high inequality, I think we're going to continue to see differentiating consumption. If we were to see a return to slightly less inequality, um, a compression of incomes, then I think we might see a real shift in food culture away from that kind of performance of status. That, that's my that's my model of future predictions.
1: And that's not constant across the United States. I I, I make a uh, sort of a general. Assumption that all food, food consumption across uh, all neighborhoods, across all states, is going to be equal. Uh, I, I think that shift uh, from one to the other, from inequality to uh, to uh, true equality or greater equity across the different class statuses, uh, do you think we might see both, depending on where one is, depending on Yeah,
0: place? absolutely. That's really smart, and I think yeah, and and with all of these things, it is actually it's it's hard to talk about the U.S. as a whole, isn't it? When when it's um, such a vast country with so many different dynamics at play but yes certainly we and we could see you know it might be that you have context like maybe the cities continue to be places of extreme inequality and so you see different kinds of food culture I mean of course there's going to be different kinds of food culture in urban or rural areas but maybe the difference in um inequality could be a factor in that too um and, and so, you know, yeah. And so there might be regions that get and there are regions that get hit in different ways by economic shocks. And I think you would see differences in, in food culture, too. Although some of what I'm talking, some of what I'm interested in is are kind of the national narrative. So what kinds of things do we see shaping the television shows that are national? Um, and so some part of this is national culture, but, but certainly the way it plays out on the ground is going to vary by region and and. Ruralness and uh, and and also just you know proximity to, to different things, uh, whether or not there's a lot of immigrants in your area, where those immigrants are from, how that affects the labor structure. I think all of that um, really affects how people actually live these values.
1: Yes, one of the whole uh, one whole chapter I think you dedicated to Ratatouille and how how uh, food performance took place in that movie. Yeah.
0: Yeah, math media is media studies are kind of, kind of that's um, to the extent that I have a, a, a single method. I'm, I'm an interdisciplinary scholar, but media studies is sort of like my my methods home. <laughs> that's kind of where I start. I start with these movies and TV shows and try to go, okay, so what how what make what makes this make sense? Why do people why do people want to see this? And what kinds of values does this reflect? And also then transmit back to them about food
1: and uh IMDB is a very wealthy uh database to uh to find this information and uh, after all when when these movies are being made the, in many cases they try to reflect what is happening in culture even if it is a, an ideal uh version of what's happening out in society outside of the uh outside of the TV screen it, it's quite interesting how how those two parallel and do uh I guess, what's your take on that in terms of movie and how it reflects uh, present-day society?
0: Uh, Ratatouille in particular, or, or just in, in uh, more...
1: Just, just in general, in your research, uh, in your uh, the research you conduct.
0: Well, but, so yeah, I think, um, and then I think mass media, particularly texts that are aiming for a really broad audience, I think they can be a, a useful window into um, broader attitudes and... And beliefs. I don't think, you know, they're not, it's not a perfect mirror. um, And not everybody is going to believe in in all the things that are shown in every movie or TV show. But if you look at enough of them, you you get a sense of like, okay, so um, I'm seeing a lot of, you know, for example, people who are fat being represented in this particular way, you see the patterns, right? And, and you, it wouldn't even make sense to have people portrayed in that way unless there were com- some certain kinds of assumptions about fatness. Um, so the stories that people are telling about fat people right now don't, I think, make sense unless you have a baseline assumption that fatness is um, an individual personal responsibility. Um, so that's where I think movies and TV shows can really be an interesting window, is that you see these stories and, and you look at you know, who's getting rewarded and what are the outcomes and what kinds of behaviors are seen as uh villainous, and what kinds of behaviors are seen as heroic and and it gives you a sense of of where the kind of broader um cultural shifts are are going, even if it doesn't represent every single region or every single individual's kind of perspective on food so that's I think that's why i why I start with media often is because I'm looking for what are these big attitudes that that are kind of um implicit in in the stories that people are telling.
1: And not only that, I think you were also uh, you also wrote about the comments that you see from uh, from those uh, uh, from the website I, from the IMDb website and other places to figure out what its audiences say about the the movie or about the uh, television show.
0: Yeah, I think of that as like a way to check myself too, right? Is it, so I you know I might watch Ratatouille and I'm going okay, so you got you know. This particular depiction of snobbery and this particular depiction of high cuisine, and what it means and what artistry means that comes to cuisine, and so and I can come up with my own interpretations of what does that mean? What does it tell us about the audience that these that these that this would be a meaningful kids movie, you know, to be made in two thousand and seven? But I think it's useful to go see what people are actually saying about the thing to see if you know to both check you know are are my assumptions right? Are people seeing? Ratatouille as heroic or are they, is everybody writing about how, man, this is a great movie, but gosh, that protagonist just wasn't sympathetic at all. That would tell you something different, right, about about how the portrayal in the movie is resonating with people. So I, so I, I always think it's important when I can to get a little bit of um, data on audience reception as well. And, and I think with With sites like IMDB, it's easier than ever to get some window into it. And again, it's not going to be perfect. The people who comment on these sites are not necessarily representative of the whole audience, but they give you at least a little window into how are people actually making sense of these things. Is it it the same thing I'm thinking, or is it something that's totally different from the way I might see
1: it? We're about out of time. uh, The final question that I'd like to ask is, what are you working on now? Where's your research uh, leading you?
0: Yeah, so I have a second book idea um, that I'm tentatively titling, You Don't Know What's Good for You, but Nobody Else Does Either. Um, and the question I think is animating it, or one way to try and uh, get at the question that I think it's going to be about is that I got really interested in this connection between paleo dieting or low carb dieting and libertarian politics on the one hand, and plant based dieting or vegan diets and very far left liberal politics on the other um, it it was just remarkable to me how uh how many libertarians are are low carb and have adopted this kind of low carb diet philosophy and similarly how consistently far left the politics of most people who follow vegan diets are. Um, and so and so I think this book is in, in in some ways an attempt to work from that question out to these these bigger patterns of what makes somebody drawn to one or another of these I guess are sometimes seen as extreme, although I, I don't know that they're that crazy. But these diet ideologies, these beliefs about what's healthy and what you should eat, that are in many cases completely um it's like they cannot both be true. Like this and the the claims that people are making in these different diet communities cannot be reconciled. Um and and often they're being drawn from similar demographics in many other ways, right? So they're they these are both more or less elite movements or, you know, upper middle at the least. um, although there's some variation. But there's Predominantly white. Uh, There's differences in gender. So low carb, again, being gendered more masculine, and plant based and vegan dieting being predominantly. Women, which is another thing to kind of try and explain. But so, what I'm interested in is that bigger question of there's there's a lot of different diet ideologies kind of on the table right now. There's a lot of things that you could decide to invest in as the idea of what it means to eat right and what the effects of different kinds of foods are on your body. So, how are people choosing the ones that they choose? What makes somebody want to be? What makes somebody drawn to low carb dieting versus plant based dieting? Um, And I have some ideas about that, but I'm really uh, it uh, yeah the book will be shaped by what what I find out as I as I start to investigate that
1: I, I find that exciting one of the first things that I think of is whether the uh, whether the masses are are truly researching it or if they're basing their decision on which one shows the uh, the best looking person in terms of the results that it supposedly magically worked on this person over time it, one of the things that advertisement shows. Uh,
0: yeah I mean I think it's dieting. I think you're on to something there in that there are different kinds of bodies that are promised by these different diets. The certainly the like low carb paleo thing is also aligned with crossfit and there's this kind of idea of muscularity um that I think is very different from the low carb plant based thing, which tends to be much more of a like they're they're aiming for a runner's physique. A kind of, you know, very slender, not necessarily super defined in terms of musculature. And it's it's totally different too than the kind of um the heart body that might be a classically working class. Body too, they're kind of like a box or so. So yeah, no, I think you're onto something too. I think the after photos matter, but then it's also like, why is why is that the physique that's associated with low carbness? Does the diet itself actually produce that body more reliably? Probably not. So then. So then, how is it that this kind of muscularity is getting associated with that? You know, anyhow, I I, I do not I don't know the answers
1: yeah. yet. <laughs> and then I think body identity too, and and socialization that is occurring early on in life, and how men are supposed to look or how women are supposed to look, and uh, the intersections with not only men and women but men of this type or women of this type.
0: And, yeah, it's uh, so classed, right?
1: Yes. Excellent. Well, I'm excited for this future, future work, and once it's uh, produced and published, I, I look forward to having you on the show again to, to discuss this further. Uh, thank you again, Margo, for being on the show, and I, and I look forward to a future discussion.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me again, Michael.